Remain standing and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And you can find the sermon scripture tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9 and going through verse 11. We are uh, mid-thought here a little bit. Uh, We're going to backtrack a little by way of reminder to what we covered a couple of weeks ago and then, Lord willing, uh, make some progress into uh, this passage, 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Pierce the darkness of our world with the light of your holy word. Speak truth into a world of lies, give clarity where there is confusion, hope where there is despair, and comfort where there is fear. Speak to our hearts, O Lord, by your Spirit and through your Son. We do ask it in Jesus' name. The last time we were together in 1 Timothy, we were looking at uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 8, and we were thinking about the difference between bodily exercise on the one hand, which the Apostle Paul says profits a little, and godliness on the other hand, which he says is profitable for all things and has promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Some of the older commentators, uh, that includes uh, men like John Calvin and Matthew Henry also, uh, did not take bodily exercise to refer simply to physical fitness and good nutrition or to the physical work that one might do as part of one's job, but considering the overall context, especially the first few verses of chapter 4, they took it to be a reference to those religious exercise of the body, or at least supposed putative religious exercises having to do with the body, like long fasts, the forbidding of marriage, the denial of certain foods, uh, 
That is to say, it is asceticism, the denial of the body born out of religious pursuits or at least allegedly spiritual concerns that Paul has in mind here when he says that this is of little value. Uh, By comparison, true godliness, not the denial of certain foods or the forbidding of marriage or long fasts, but true godliness is that which should be desired by us and that which is profitable for all things and furnishes hope and promise both for now, for this life, and also for heaven, for the life that is to come. Remember that we said that godliness means reverence, and it indicates the respect that the believer owes to God. It is holy fear of God and love for God mingled together, coming from the awareness that God is holy, that all of life is lived before his face. John Calvin, I remind you, called godliness the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christian living. It is to keep God at the center of every activity. It is to ask if this makes him happy and gives him glory. It is to put God in everything, the sleeping and the waking and the eating and the drinking, all of life. It is the attitude we mentioned of David, who said, I have set the Lord always before me. And true godliness, Paul says, not bodily denials, but true godliness is most to be commended, most to be desired, and most to be pursued by us. What do you think that would look like, dear friends, if we valued, truly valued godliness? And how do you think this true godliness is to be attained? If both a Christian minister and Christian church members alike, if every Christian is called to be godly and to prize godliness above all things, how is it that they are made godly by the Lord? Notice what Paul says in verse 9 how he concludes this with another of his, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance statements. The perceptive reader will recognize these words and notice that this is the third time that Paul has said something like this in this one letter alone. You had 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save of whom I am chief. And you had 1 Timothy 3.1, a slightly shortened expression. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, an overseer, he desires a good work. And now again, 1 Timothy 4.9. Now, some have attached 
verse 9, not to verse 8, but to verse 10. That is possible. I wouldn't want to remove that possibility altogether. But I'm suggesting this evening that it is best to attach it to verse 8. And again, it is a way of Paul to draw attention to the importance of and to emphasize what he is saying. And because it has been so common for people throughout history and has been such a temptation for people to make godliness consist in outward observances, in things like making pilgrimages and visiting relics and buying indulgences and engaging in fastings and bodily denials and the forbidding of marriage and of eating certain foods, all of which Paul calls of little value because it has been so common in history for the church to degenerate into prizing these outward observances and bodily exercises. It was necessary for him to attach this solemn phrase in verse 9 and to remind us of the difference between pseudo-godliness, or godliness so-called, and true godliness. I think we have similar temptations in our day. I don't pretend to know what they all are. You can wear a Christian t-shirt with a Christian message or put on a bracelet that has some Christian reference on it or listen to Christian music or engage in the Christian subculture and economy of buying Christian-themed things. Put the bumper sticker on the car, whatever it is, and it might become for you godliness, a Christian character, witnessing for Jesus, whatever it might be. Incidentally, I find this very interesting. John Calvin points out that as John the Baptist was a more rigorous observer of asceticism and practiced greater self-denial when it came to bodily things than our Lord Jesus did, that John the Baptist should therefore be considered the more godly and the more pious if bodily denials are important as so many think they are. In fact, it was observed by others that Jesus and his disciples were not as strict as John and his disciples. And so it is clear, is it not, that people are always being misled and that for a very long time they have been misled by an incorrect understanding of true godliness. But true godliness consists in opening up one's heart to the grace of God. It consists in our hearts being strengthened, not fundamentally by movements or denials of the body, but of the grace of God in the human heart and soul. And to back up a little bit, to use the words of verse 6, it is to be, quote, nourished in the words of faith. 
Matthew Henry pointed out that this phrase has to do not only with Christians in general, but also with pastors, for that is the context. It is about Timothy and his ministry. I was reminded of that two weeks ago when a dear brother asked me a question about the sermon I preached, and it caused me to dig deeper and gain further understanding. We all need to be nourished in the words of faith, pastor and church member alike. We need to saturate our lives with the word of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the sum of the Christian life and faith. That is what he means by nourished in the words of faith. Practically speaking, dear friends, we are to sanctify the Lord's day by being attendants in church morning and evening when the word of God is preached so that we can hear his word. We are blessed to have Bibles. You have a Bible. I have a Bible. Translated in our language, we should open our Bibles every day and read them and study them and meditate on God's law, his word, day and night. What a pity, dear friend that so many Christians have Bibles, many Bibles, but rarely, if ever, read them. But there are those of you here tonight, Lord bless you. You cherish your secret, private time with the Lord, and he will surely bless you for it. There are those of you who would not consider missing church. You delight to be here twice on Sunday and God will surely bless you for it. I am absolutely convinced of that. You are opening up your heart to the grace of God. You are seeking to be nourished in the words of faith. You long to hear the gospel of life and to hear the voice of your Savior again and again. So there is the word of God. There is, of course, also prayer. Prayer is that God-centered conversation, someone called it, that fuels a God-centered life. It's the delight of every child of God to commune with their Heavenly Father in prayer. He always hears us. He's always open to us. He's always welcoming us. There is the bread and wine of communion, the nourishment of grace and of Christ for the Christian life. But there is much more that could be said, but true godliness, Paul says, fundamentally, is that godliness of the heart that seeks after God, that opens up to the grace of God, that practices his presence at every moment, that lives reverently before him, that fears him with a holy fear and loves him with a sincere heart. I remember John Calvin's personal motto. I think it sums this up rather nicely. 
my heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. You've seen those movies. I know you have. People are in church on Christmas Eve. and They're whispering to each other and carrying on conversations and not paying one whit of attention to the service or to the preacher. You know, there are those who trust in, well, I've been to the Mass, and I've been to confession. I was raised Italian. I'm Irish Catholic. I'm Dutch Reformed. I'm Scottish Presbyterian. Whatever it is. My parents were Christians. My grandparents were missionaries. It's all well and good, perhaps, but it's misplaced hope. If that is where you think true godliness is found. To fast on Fridays during Lent, some prophet, I suppose. It's not what Paul is talking about. So there is the word of God. There is prayer. There are the sacraments. There is the heart that seeks the living God and lives every moment before him. Now I want to move along uh, to verse 10. Here Paul calls attention to his work as an apostle and the end or the goal of that work. Notice what he says, for to this end, verse 10, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, if any of you are scratching your heads this evening, because your Bible did not say labor and suffer reproach, but perhaps labor and strive or something to that effect, I will let you know that there is a textual variation in the ancient manuscripts that you should be aware of here. Some of the best and most reliable manuscripts have labor and then struggle, or literally agonize, while the manuscript evidence or the manuscript text used here has a very, very similar sounding word to agonize that means to suffer reproach. So either, Paul says, to this end we labor and struggle, or to this end we labor and strive, or to this end we labor and we suffer reproach. We really can't say with certainty. Now, both, of course, are consistent, aren't they, with how Paul speaks elsewhere and with the general teaching of the Bible and of the Christian life. Paul is laboring. Some of you women tonight know what it means to be laboring in another sense. He is working. He's struggling, striving, even agonizing to the end that all men everywhere might hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, sometimes we forget how hard the Apostle Paul really worked. He makes mention of it 
very often in this same letter, he has already called the ministry a good work. It is labor. It is labor intensive. It is with a specific goal in mind, the proclamation of the gospel to all people and calling them to repentance and faith. And the message he is saying is so important because the plight of sinful man is so dire and because the time is so short. Paul was one who worked diligently and strove mightily unto the accomplishment of that goal. And we need to be reminded of that in our day. We need to recapture his spirit, the intensity of it, the struggle of it, the diligence and the labor of it, the importance of the work of the gospel. Let us never be lazy. And for Paul, this was absolutely his life's calling. His labor, his struggle, his burden over which he agonized with intensity of body and soul. Now, as for the other part, at least elsewhere, if not here, Paul will speak of suffering reproach for the sake of Jesus. And I want to discuss that with you tonight. Dear friends, I think that we have gotten this idea from somewhere that Christians in America aren't supposed to suffer reproach for our faith, that we're not supposed to be made fun of or ridiculed, or misunderstood, or to have our decency questioned, or our rights denied. And that if we do, that is somehow a travesty, a grave miscarriage of justice. And if that is how it has been, or if that is how you have thought, I want you to understand something. We are living on borrowed time. We are living on Christian capital that has been stored up by those who came before us but is quickly being spent. This is not how it always has been. This is not what has been typical throughout church history. Everywhere Christians have been, they have suffered reproach for the sake of the gospel. They've been misunderstood criticized, marginalized, ridiculed, in many cases much worse, persecuted, imprisoned, tortured, martyred. This is part and parcel of the Christian faith. It is how our Lord Jesus was treated. And it is how he said his disciples would be treated if they truly loved him and bore witness for him. Think of it this way. God sent his only son, the holy lamb of God, into the world. And what did the world do with him? They hated him. They conspired against him. And in the end, they killed him by nailing him to a cross. 
It is a commentary on sinful man that when confronted with pure holiness, instead of repenting and falling before him, they murdered him to get rid of him because they made, he made them so uncomfortable. It's the same way with those who are truly Christian. They will make unbelievers uncomfortable. They will remind unbelievers of what is really true. They will confront them with the fact that there is a God, that we are all accountable to him, that we live in a moral universe, that we are fallen, that we need a savior. Now, God may bless you and give you relationships with unbelievers, but never forget it. The Christian is called called to suffer reproach for the sake of the gospel, to take up the cross daily, to deny oneself and follow after Jesus. And that if the world first hated our Christ, he said that they would surely hate you as well. And beloved, remember this though, it's not because there's something wrong with Jesus. And it's really not because there's something wrong with his true children, but because there is something so dreadfully wrong with the world. And so Paul says we labor like this and we strive like this and we agonize like this because we trust in the living God. Now, lest you think that Christians are the most miserable and the most pathetic people on the face of the earth, because they labor in a seemingly impossible task and because they suffer reproach for the name of Christ, Paul says, oh no. We trust, we place our hope in the living God. We don't care so much about popularity. We're not concerned so much with man's approval. We don't really care what men say about us. We have put our hope in the living God. That is where our hope lies, in God. If we labor, if we suffer, if we struggle, if we are afflicted, our afflictions are accompanied by hope in God. The living God, the God who lives, who is alive, this is our foundation. And therefore, we are never ashamed. Some of you may remember the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp. He was an old man, at least 86 years old. Is that older than anyone in the room tonight? You don't have to admit if, if not. The story comes to us from approximately one 60 AD. We believe that Polycarp was the last surviving person to have known an apostle, having been himself a student of the apostle John. He was Bishop of Smyrna. In 160 AD, Christians were being persecuted throughout portions of the Roman Empire. 
and they were hated by the Romans for a number of things. One of them, try this one on for size, was the accusation that they were not sufficiently Roman because they refused to worship the Roman pantheon of gods. Therefore, by the way, they were actually called atheists. And also cannibals, by the way, because they ate the flesh and drank the blood of their God. Polycarp, at 86, was led into the arena. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. And on hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them said, Down with the atheists. (laughs) The proconsul then said, Swear and reproach Christ and I will set you free. Eighty-six years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said, and I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied, It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good, to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. Uh, If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then distinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. The crowd collected wood and bundles of sticks. When the pile was ready, the old man took off his outer clothes, untied his belts, began to remove his sandals. And when they went to fix him with nails, he said. Leave me as I am, for he that gives me the strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. So they bound him with his hands behind him like a distinguished ram chosen from a flock for sacrifice. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you. I give you thanks 
that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God of predestined, revealed to me and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you with him, through the Holy Spirit, be glory both now and forever. Amen. His preaching indicates to us, among other things, that he was not a universalist. And neither, of course, was Paul. When he says in verse 10 that God is the Savior of all men, he is not sounding a note of universalism. We now understand that his language here means something like this. The Savior of all men, that is to say, of those who believe. Or the Savior of all men, specifically of those who believe. Dear friend, it is the very reason we are called to evangelize. The very reason we send out missionaries. The very reason the gospel is preached. Why Paul labored so strenuously, why Polycarp even called his killers to repentance, because only those who believe in Jesus Christ will experience God as their Savior from sin. Christ is our only hope. Christ is the only way. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the only thing that makes one a Christian. Paul will say in Romans, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So let us labor. Indeed, if necessary, let us suffer. To the end that all men everywhere may hear and learn to put their trust in the living God. We thank you, Father, for the boldness and the courage and the strength of the apostle and of every saint of God, every Christian of every age who has been called to stand against the fury of the enemy, temptations of the evil one, the trial of affliction, and of suffering. 
and by your grace has stood firm and stood the test. We thank you for showing us, your church, what is true godliness, that it does not exist or consist in the outward, material, bodily things, but in the inward disposition of the human heart, shaped by grace, sanctified by your spirit, taught to fear and reverence the living God and to walk by faith. O oh Lord, keep us from being distracted, confused, and led astray. Keep us from superstition and error and the darkness of this world. So many, O oh Lord, have departed from the true faith. So many worship in ignorance. So many worship idols and practice paganism, even under the name of Christ. Your word alone is light in this darkness. Your word alone gives clarity and understanding. Your word alone shows us the way. So help us, O oh Father, to remember what we have heard, to put it into practice, to love you with all of our hearts. Have mercy, O oh Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.